Oh dear, fretted Nigel as he scurried out of the Raleigh Tavern. I need to tell Liz all that has happened. Heaven help Max and Clary in Boston. If Patrick's prophecy comes true, the fight with England will move beyond words. It will turn bloody. Welcome to the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, with your hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. This podcast is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And I'm your narrator, Denny Brownlee. By the way, as you listen to this episode from the audiobook The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, keep in mind you can download your very own copy of it by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you'll find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, epicorderoftheseven.com. On today's episode, we'll bring you Chapter 51 of The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, where we'll see our up-and-coming founding fathers really begin to show their stuff to a British politician who's acting as the governor of Virginia. I mean, I tell you, Patrick Henry, Richard Henry Lee, George Washington, these guys were impressive statesmen, as you'll soon hear. Then, later in Jenny's Corner, our impressive author, the esteemed Jenny L. Cody will tell us about her aspirations of serving in politics. Uh, or not. And almost as equally impressive, meet our host. What do you mean, almost? Uh, our brilliant feline phenomenon. You mean almost brilliant? Uh, Liz Briant. And our Scottish canine crusader, who's almost impressive, uh, uh, Maximilian Braveheart the Bruce. And uh, last but not least, as in not the least bit impressive, uh, no, uh, uh, um, our rodent of renown, uh, Nigel P. Monaco. Oh, merci, monsieur, adequate announcer. Ay, ay, ay. A little bit sensitive today, aren't we? Well, it's not often we are regaled with such superlative accolades as almost impressive. We, uh, oui. your assessment of our hosting acumen is decidedly uh, underwhelming. Ay, with high praise like yours, it causes me just to hold me head up about halfway. <laughs> Man, I, I simply meant... You know, I mean, compared to the Founding Fathers, who of us are even, and you know, and, and Jenny L. Cody, I mean, what a great writer. I mean, compared to them, we're... And uh, since when are we to compare our various attributes to those that others possess? Well, I, I didn't mean it like... We, as I recall, the maker made each of us uh, unique, with special abilities unlike any other, meant to be used for his glory, not ours. Aye, so what if I can't speak like Patrick Henry? I'll bet he couldn't bury a bone as good as me. And you're probably right. After all, me gifts may not be in yapping about political stuff, for I'm a mere doggy with wee little legs. Go on, mon ami. I were born not with a silver leash around me neck, but as a wayward mutt from the mean, craggy, wolf-infested hills of Scotland. Ah, preach it, brother. Where I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. You don't even wear boots. Never to be caged by the tyranny of a city dog catcher. Wait, what? Open your eyes, monsieur, and look around and see oppression being wielded by those who would abuse their power for selfish gain. Dog catchers? Indeed, I say, as we speak, while we enjoy the freedom to pick and choose where we live and work and with whom we share those choices, and you chose me, I say, uh, don't push it, old chap. Right now, there are many of me brothers and sisters in pause who aren't quite so free. 
and it's time to take a stand. Max, sit. Okay. Don't! <laughs> Max! Aye, you tricked me, lad, but no, I'm taking a stand. Just as the lads of days gone by in our story fought the slings and arrows and made outrageous fortunes, I too am Spartacus. For I see a day when stray doggies of all breeds will no longer be shackled by forgotten words and bonds and the ink stains that have dried upon some line. That's from a Glen Campbell song. For if I had a hammer and a thumb to grab hold of it, I was just going to say, I'd hammer out the nails of injustice. I'd tear down the walls of every dog pound, not legally, crying, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled little flea-bitten doggies scratching to be free. Glory, Nigel, hallelujah. Liz, stop. Nigel, glory, All right, all right. Bravo, Senator Maximilian. That was uh, impressive. And we'll come back to this uh, political powder keg in just a bit. Right now, let's hear how our founding fathers handled their own powder keg uh, back in the day. For it is sure to be uh, impressive, no? Chapter 51. Coach and Six or 10 shilling jackets. Williamsburg, May 8th, 1769. Well, you look at that, Cato said to Nigel. They perched high in the trees above the governor's palace. There, standing in front of the palace, was a gleaming white coach trimmed in elaborate gold with bright red wheels. Six immaculate cream-colored horses stood two by two to pull the coach, adorned with ornate silver bridles that reflected the early morning sun. That looks like something the King of England himself would ride in. It is precisely that, old boy, Nigel replied. This coach was actually built for King George III, but given by his uncle, the Duke of Cumberland, to Virginia's new royal governor. That coach once bore the royal crest of the king, but now it displays Virginia's coat of arms. It is resplendent in detail, and those Percheron dray horses were imported from Hanover, Germany. Nigel crossed his arms over his chest. After Governor Farquhar's death, clearly King George is attempting to woo and awe his loyal subjects here in Virginia with the appointment of his personal friend as the elegant new governor. The front doors of the palace opened, and servants dressed in the finest livery lined the steps and walkway leading to the palace's front gate, which bore the British lion and unicorn. Shortly there emerged walking down the palace steps the new royal governor of Virginia, Norburn Berkeley, Baron de Botetort. He was dressed in a luxurious red coat lined with gold thread, plum-colored breeches, silk stockings, silver-buckled shoes, and a large powdered wig. A charming man in his early fifties, Lord Botetort exuded confidence and wore a broad smile with every regal step. After the governor ascended the steps to sit in the coach, the coachman snapped the reins and the horses pulled away from the palace. As they rode along the palace green and turned left on Duke of Gloucester Street to head to the capital, Lord Botetort waved to the common people who stood in the streets looking at him with wide eyes, gaping at the royal presence gracing their dusty street. Never had the citizens of Williamsburg seen anything such as this. So the new governor is a bachelor just like us? <laughs> it's a shame, though. 
he has all that pomp and no one to share it with, observed Cato as they watched the coach drive away. I've been thinking. I need to settle a nest and have eaglets, maybe when we get back to Philadelphia. Patrick now has two more little girls. He's so happy with his family of five children. What about you, Nigel? Do you think you'll ever find the right mouse and settle down? Nigel wiggled his whiskers with a chuckle. <laughs> I seldom have time to think of such things, old boy. I doubt I shall ever settle down to the wistful pursuit of romance. The mouse tapped Cato on his wing. But you go right ahead and allow Cupid's arrow to pierce your soaring heart. For now, however, please transport me to the capital to watch the regal arrival of Lord Botetort. Patrick Henry stood under a shady tree with Richard Henry Lee as the coach pulled up in front of the capital. As Lord Botetort climbed down from the coach, Patrick studied the effect this regal show was having on the people. It appears the king is using a far different approach with his old dominion of Virginia than the heavy hand he's used on the Bostonians. While the Massachusetts Assembly sits dissolved in the shadow of the king's guns, we are called to meet in the brilliance of the king's splendor. Richard Henry Lee nodded and watched the smiling men bow and the admiring ladies curtsy as Lord Botetort entered the capital. Indeed, we shall soon see if the heavy hand of the king remains hidden beneath the royal cloak of the governor. Patrick nodded and then smiled, spotting a tall, red-headed 26-year-old young man in a royal blue coat and breeches walking briskly to the capital. We shall also see if Edmund Pendleton and the old guard try to get newly elected burgesses like Tom Jefferson there to succumb to the charms of the king. With their powers to dissolve legislatures at will, I submit that royal governors remain a threat to liberty behind their gilded coach and six. Agreed. Shall we get to business and see if Lord Botetort wishes to extend his noble favor on our humble assembly? Richard questioned with a smile, motioning with an outstretched hand. Together the two Burgesses joined the others filing into the capital. It was time to swear in new members like Thomas Jefferson from Albemarle County, for Speaker Peyton Randolph to take his formal oath for the new assembly, and to see exactly what this new governor desired for Virginia once they decided what to do about the Townsend Acts, pomp or punishment. May 16, 1769 Following the formalities of the opening assembly, Lord Botetort entertained some fifty burgesses at the governor's palace. He lavished them with fine food and drink, while an ensemble of chamber musicians filled the ballroom with the heavenly sounds of Peter Pelham's harpsichord and accompanying violins. Nigel was in ecstasy in the beautiful candlelit room, closing his eyes as he swayed to the music of Handel, Bach, and Telemann. He applauded and cheered for Peter Pelham at the conclusion of the evening. Bravo, Mr. Pelham! Another exquisite performance! Bravo! The little mouse didn't want to leave the palace. Subsequent evenings found the governor being wined and dined in the fine homes of the Tidewater Gentry, or dancing in the Apollo Room, of the Raleigh Tavern. It seemed as if things between the new royal governor and the House of Burgesses were off to a stellar beginning. But after handling many routine business matters for the colony, attention was finally turned to the Townsend Acts. 
the House met in the Committee of the Whole to discuss what Virginia would do next. The Townsend Acts are a flaming sword pointed at the people's liberties that has to be removed by all means. Richard Henry Lee exclaimed, Hear, hear, answered many of the Burgesses, pounding their hands on the benches. How pitiful that Parliament would actually think we are such simpletons that do not see these Townsend duties for what they really are. A tax, Patrick Henry railed. We must denounce them, just as we did the stamp tax. If we make a united stand to oppose them, they will be repealed as well. Listen to these telling words about the Townsend Acts. From Letters from a Farmer in Pennsylvania, John Blair offered, holding up the Virginia Gazette, it is a snare worthy of Nero to disguise taxes as trade regulation. Nigel sat up high in the new balcony, pleased to be able to sit and watch the proceedings of the entire house, rather than peeking from beneath the tablecloth of the clerk's table. And Nero was more revolting than a rat, I assure you, he squeaked. He looked over to see the governor's messenger take his seat in the balcony, so slipped under a bench out of sight. Richard Henry Lee reached into his pocket and unfolded a letter. My friend John Dickinson is that farmer in Pennsylvania, and he sent me these words. Virginia, sir, has maintained the common cause with such attention, spirit, and temper as has gained her the highest degree of reputation among the other colonies. It is as much in her power to dishearten them as to encourage them. He looked around at the men and lifted his hand in Patrick's direction. Gentlemen, Virginia has led the other colonies before with Mr. Henry's Stamp Act resolves. It is time to lead them again with resolves against these despicable Townsend Acts. The usually quiet George Washington spoke up. Agreed. Massachusetts has implored each colony to join her in the fight against these acts. Now that she has come under the thumb of the king, our sister colony looks to Virginia to lead the way. As the largest and oldest colony, I feel we have a duty to take the lead in this matter. However goes Virginia, so goes America. Nods of agreement and murmurs of approval rippled through the chamber. Let us then draft the Virginia Resolves against the Townsend Acts. Our resolves must obviously uphold the exclusive right of taxation by our own assembly, just as we stated in the Stamp Act Resolves, Patrick Henry offered. But we must especially address the grievous threat to colonists who would be sent to England for trial. Imagine the horror that awaits any wretched American who offends those in power. He could be dragged from his home, thrown into prison, shackled with iron chains in the bowels of a ship for weeks, and carried off to a distant land where no friend or family can reach him to provide assistance. With no witness to testify to his innocence, I submit he would rot in the Tower of London or meet the hangman's noose. The next ship sailing for America with the news of his demise. No, we cannot allow this, gentlemen. It is the undoubted privilege of British subjects to have a trial by jury of their peers in their home locale. Liberty herself is in danger of being seized, shackled, and thrown into the holds of a ship bound for England. Hear, hear, Nigel cheered with a fist raised in the air. 
The little mouse watched the faces of the Burgesses, who considered that such a fate as Patrick Henry described could await each and every one of them, if they displeased the crown. After a lengthy discussion, four resolves were unanimously adopted. A committee was then formed to draw up the formal response to the king to be presented the following day, chaired by John Blair, Jr., with members Patrick Henry, Richard Henry Lee, Treasurer Robert Carter Nicholas, Thompson Mason, and Benjamin Harrison. Not a single shout of treason was uttered in this chamber today. How splendid to see such calm and unity this time in the House of Burgesses, Nigel noted with a smile. He then spied the governor's messenger leaving the balcony. Outside of this chamber, however, things may be anything but calm. Hey gang, Monsieur Announcer Lad here, or Denny, as people often call me outside this studio. I hope you're enjoying today's portion of the audiobook, The Voice, the Revolution, and the Key, and we will get back to it in just a moment. Now, as I've mentioned, I'm with Playful World Ministries. I produce the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, as a ministry, a labor of love, and so it's made possible only through the generous gifts of our Playful World Ministries partners. So here are a few ways you can play a vital role in helping our ministry continue to produce quality, family-friendly entertainment. First, your prayers. We'd be so thankful if you would pray for the Maker's blessing. Next, tell your friends about our podcast and encourage them to listen. Finally, as God leads you, consider supporting us through a financial gift or even becoming a sponsor so we can tell others about your business or ministry. Simply go to the show notes that came with this episode and click on the link to our Playful World Ministries Giving Fuel account. And thanks for considering Playful World Ministries. Now, back to Chapter 51 of The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key. Governor's Palace, May 17, 1769 I shall put an end to this abominable business immediately, Lord Botetort said. He calmly dabbed the corners of his mouth with his napkin and looked up at his messenger, who had brought word of the resolves the House of Burgesses had adopted yesterday and would finalize this morning. Thank you for your report. Please go and inform the Burgesses to meet me immediately in the council chamber, Lord Botetort instructed, taking one more sip of tea and scooting back his chair. As his messenger left the room, he looked out the front window of the palace onto Palace Green and shook his head. I had hoped it would not come to this. This is a closed session of the assembly. Keep the door locked. Patrick Henry said with a firm voice at hearing the knock of the messenger on the chamber door. The governor's messenger can wait until we've finished our business here. Thomas Jefferson raised his eyebrows. He leaned over and whispered to another Burgess, Mr. Henry's boldness astounds me. Speaker Randolph motioned to Mr. Blair. Mr. Blair, please continue reading from the fourth resolve. Resolved, nemine contradicente with no one speaking against, that an humble and loyal address be presented to His Majesty to assure him of our inviolable attachment to his sacred person and government, and to beseech his royal interposition as the father of his people, however remote from the seat of his empire, to quiet the minds of his loyal subjects of this colony, and to avert from them those dangers and miseries which will ensue 
from the seizing and carrying beyond sea any person residing in America suspected of any crime whatsoever to be tried in any other manner than by the ancient and long-established court of proceeding, John Blair reported, looking around the room to gauge the response of the assembly to the committee's resolutions and address to the king. Another unanimous vote was taken to approve the resolves. Patrick eyeballed the Burgesses, and a half-smile appeared on his face as he saw this time not a boisterous debate as with the Stamp Act resolves, but a unanimous house standing together against the tyranny of the crown. Even the old guard members like Edmund Pendleton and Peyton Randolph realized the dangerous waters the king had sailed into with the Townsend Acts. While the House of Burgesses expressed its opposition to the Acts, it maintained its steadfast devotion to the king. No one desired anything but unity with Great Britain, but not at the loss of liberty. Very well, Mr. Speaker. I move that copies of these resolves be sent immediately to the other colonies, Richard Henry Lee declared. Second, Thompson Mason added. Bravo, Nigel cheered from the balcony, preening his whiskers. Not only was there harmony in the house to easily pass these resolves, but the humans do not require the services of Liz or myself to have them printed and forwarded to the other colonies. This was almost too easy. The chamber door was unlocked, and a wave of fresh air filled the room as the door opened, followed by the governor's messenger. He walked right up to Speaker Randolph's chair. Mr. Speaker, the governor demands the immediate attendance of your house in the council chamber. Very well, Speaker Randolph responded, standing up to walk to the door. Gentlemen, follow me. The honeymoon is over. Patrick Henry murmured to Richard Henry Lee. As the Burgesses filed out of the room to climb the wide staircase to the upper floor, Nigel held a paw to his mouth. Oh, dear. He scurried along behind them. Lord Botetourt sat confidently in his ornate chair at the head of the table in the imposing governor's chamber, his other counselors sitting on either side of him in their seats of prominence. As Speaker Randolph entered the room, Patrick Henry stood beside him as the other Burgesses clustered around them. Once the entire assembly had quietly gathered, Lord Botetourt lifted his chin and gazed into their faces. Instead of the smiling, pleasant man they had wined and dined the past week, here sat a man with serious intentions. "'I have heard your resolves and augur ill of their effect,' Lord Botetourt announced coldly. "'You have made it my duty,' "'to dissolve you, and you are dissolved accordingly.' "'No one said a word for a moment, "'but looked at one another uncomfortably. "'Nigel planted his face in his paw and shook his head. "'Speaker Randolph bowed respectfully, "'and the Burgesses nodded politely "'as they somberly left the chamber. "'As they exited the building, "'Thomas Jefferson came alongside Patrick Henry.' "'What do we do now?' Thomas asked. Patrick Henry grinned and patted the young Burgess on the back with a wink. "'We continue our meeting at the Raleigh.'" Raleigh Tavern, May 18, 1769
Ninety ex-Burgesses filed into the elegant Apollo room with its rich pine floors, pink marble fireplace, and rich blue paneling. Sunlight poured into the room from six tall windows, and Speaker Randolph took his seat in front of the fireplace. Above his head was carved the motto of this lively meeting place, Jollity is the offspring of wisdom and good living. Nigel couldn't help but grin at the change of venue and the brave determination of these men to stand in defiance to the crown. The Burgesses were here to resume their meeting from yesterday afternoon, and George Washington was to present plans for a non-importation agreement. Colonel Washington, the floor is yours, Peyton Randolph said, no longer in his formal robe and speaker chair, but now called moderator in this gathering of ex-Burgesses. We, the late representatives of the people, are eager to see what your committee has prepared. George Washington stood to his feet and bowed humbly, towering over the men with his broad-shouldered stature. Thank you, Mr. Randolph. Gentlemen, as you know, I seldom rise to speak in your midst. I leave oratory to those who are far more equipped than I. He smiled and nodded at Patrick Henry. But I have discussed the challenges before us with our wise friend, Mr. George Mason, who is not here. He penned a series of prudent measures that combine with other measures proposed by merchant groups in the northern colonies. Our committee proposes that we form a new Virginia Association to promote a non-importation agreement for the citizens of Virginia. If I may, he said, before opening up the document and glancing around the room. Some of the ex-Burgesses cast uncomfortable glances at one another. Others sat up in their seats, eager to hear what Washington would propose. We hereby propose that the good people of Virginia cease importing from Britain the following list of items, Washington began. We ask you to join the association and pledge to import none of the goods taxed by Parliament for the purpose of raising revenue through the Townsend duties, with the exception of cheap paper which we will need for correspondence. Gentlemen, we propose a complete ban on British goods until the Townsend Acts are repealed. Washington proceeded to read the long list of items that the good people of Virginia would be asked to no longer import. Instead of luxurious silk fabric, colonists would wear rough clothes made from homespun Lindsay Woolsey. Instead of delicious, superb British tea, Colonists would make do with drinking sassafras tea. As Washington read, some of the ex-Burgesses got up and left the room. They would not be party to the new association, either unwilling to sacrifice or fearing the backlash of the crown. Once Washington finished reading, the four Virginia resolves were once more confirmed, and those remaining were asked to sign the non-importation agreement. Patrick Henry was among the first of the ex-Burgesses to sign his name on the agreement. He handed the quill to the next man in line and went to give George Washington an affirming handshake. No ministerial mandate can make us buy ten-pound coats when we prefer to warm ourselves by the fire of liberty in ten-shilling jackets. A toast! One of the ex-Burgesses exclaimed as servants brought in cups filled with punch. These bold men would celebrate this momentous occasion with a rousing series of traditional toasts, eleven in all. They toasted the king, the queen, and the royal family, the governor, the speaker, 
the treasurer, and to prosperity in Virginia. They even toasted their English allies and the farmer, whose words had encouraged Virginia to lead the charge as the voice for the colonies against the Townsend Acts. During the celebration, Patrick Henry, George Washington, and Richard Henry Lee joined the toasts, but maintained their caution over what was to come. I wrote to one of my London merchants that the Parliament of Great Britain has no more right to put their hands in my pocket for money without my consent than I have to put my hand into yours, George Washington said, pointing to his friends. Clearly, Parliament disagrees, as they have now stationed two regiments of British troops in Boston, Richard Henry Lee added. Boston is now a garrisoned town. Troops have taken over Faneuil Hall and the Massachusetts State House for their military headquarters. Soldiers have set up camp in Boston Common and taken over the parade grounds. Armed redcoats filled the streets of Boston, and hot-headed men led by the likes of Samuel Adams and John Hancock are standing on every street corner with clenched fists, Patrick Henry reported gravely. Gentlemen, despite our stand against the crown, I fear it's only a matter of time before red coats are not the only source of red filling the streets of Boston. Oh, dear, fretted Nigel as he scurried out of the Raleigh Tavern. I need to tell Liz all that has happened. Heaven help Max and Clary in Boston. If Patrick's prophecy comes true, the fight with England will move beyond words. It will turn bloody. Hmm, such profound words from the patriotic Burgesses and uh, from you too, Nigel. Very, uh, impressive. Well, I had an impressive writer, didn't I? Okay, you made your point. So, why don't we head to Jenny's Corner and talk to our impressive writer? Hey, let's talk politics. Do we have to? Well, indeed, my pet. I, for one, would love to know her thoughts on the matter. Very well. Uh, Miss Jenny? Liz, what's on your brilliant mind today? Uh, well, Miss Jenny, have you ever wanted to go into politics? <laughs> that's funny. That That's a joke question, right? Uh, <laughs> no, quite seriously. With all your knowledge of the history and foundational principles of this great country, have you ever considered using it to uh, hold public office? Have I ever wanted to go into politics? <laughs> no way. And you know what? I'm not called to do it, but some of you are. And some of my readers have said that they want to be governor, governor of Texas, Chad Velez says. Chad also says, I want to become governor, and then I want to become president of the United States. Another reader of mine, Ethan Nunn, he also has ambitions and visions of becoming president one day. And so I call him Mr. President all the time. And there's many of you who are going to be called into the realm of politics, and we need godly statesmen. Obviously, we do, because this country was founded by men who followed the Judeo-Christian belief, ethic, held God as our supreme sovereign. And because of that, they were wise in how they governed our nation, how they founded it, how they governed it. And I think it's very apparent that we've lost our way, and we need some good, godly people in politics. We need honesty. We need truthfulness. So I hope that some of you will be even inspired 
by these books on our founding fathers to say, okay, what's my part in history? Capital H-I-S. What is God calling me to do? And I hope and pray some of you will say politics. Indeed. We could use a few of your, uh, dare I say, impressive young readers and listeners. Uh, Thanks as always, Miss Jenny. Now, I feel we need to address what we heard earlier in Max's stirring and, uh... And almost impressive... Aye, me almost impressive speech about the situation faced by so many of me stray brothers and sisters. Well, Max, you will be happy to know that something is being done. I did some uh, almost impressive research... Give me a break. And I found out that the dog pound to which you refer is a no-kill animal shelter. Uh, meaning what? meaning they do all they can to keep animals healthy and ensure them good quality of life. Well, I'm glad to know that. We, oui, but do you know the very best way to ensure it is true? I do. The best thing that could happen to those animals is to be adopted into a good home. Indeed. Many of these animals would make fine pets if simply given the chance. Aye, like Gilliman did with me as a wee pup back in Scotland. And like the maker did with all of us. His word even says that we've all been strays. We, like silly little sheep, who just needed the good shepherd of Jesus. And through him, we've all been adopted into his family. Aye, talk about going to a good home then, eh? Indeed, I say, the whole thing is rather, um, oh, what's the word? Impressive! Impressive. Indeed. Once again, the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And remember, you can download your very own copy of the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you can find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, www.epicorderofthe7.com. And I'm Denny Brownlee. Thank you for listening, and join us next time on the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast. Have a grandee! A biento, mes amis! Huzzah! And ta-ta! And always remember, you are loved and you are able.